Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, talking about LSD really dates you in more ways than one, doesn't it? Um, uh, well, I'm here to get you high, I guess. Um, I, I'm, I'm briefly going to allude to this picture. As you've just heard, I do take care of world research now at, uh, at Savills, and there is an international uh, component for, uh, to our ideas on urbanism. This is Darby in Mumbai, um, a slum. But I just put it up here, something maybe to think about, uh, not that I'm advocating anything about poverty or insanitary conditions, but I'm very interested in the way that human beings have organized themselves through millennia. I think the oldest paved roads still in existence are 5,000 years old. So um, urbanism is nothing new. And um, I might suggest that as an overreaching theme that we've we've rather lost this than the late 20th century model uh, of development. I guess medieval London or uh, medieval Bristol, whatever, if it existed, um, uh, would have looked pretty much like this as well. So what I'm actually going to be talking about and homing in on uh, is much more that sort of way of organising space than it is about architecture. And um, I would suggest to you that the models that we use, the business models, the financial models and so forth, are very, very focused on that top thing, the architecture, what I call the product, the buildings. And uh, what we tend to forget about are the other two key components of development and placemaking. Uh, the land, the geography, uh, and I have to confess here now that I am a geographer, not a, not a designer. Um, but I think we've, we've forgotten about how to organise um, space at a, very, at a macro uh, sort of level. And then um, also the management of place, the ongoing management and how it works, not just at the time that it's built, uh, but how it continues working into the future. And that links in very much to the way you organise the money. So if we're talking about designing places, I think we have to be talking about designing not just the buildings, but designing the land holding, the tenure, um, how, how that's, and how designing how it's going to fit into the bigger national and even international geographies. And we have to be talking about how we manage the money and uh, how, how that goes. So that's the focus of what I'm going to uh, come to. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how many of you have been following uh, Savile's research for the last 25 years, so I thought, well, just in case you don't know sort of what we've been up to, I want to very quickly summarise a huge body of work that we've done about urbanism or good design and value. And actually, I came across... It doesn't seem to be moving on. I came across this diagram, which is actually from something we published in 2010. It's one of a long series of things where um, we've looked at value. In this case, we were very interested in uh, space syntax, the connectivity uh, and permeability uh, and connectedness of uh, streets. And I think um, it, this struck me as, as, as a very good diagram to illustrate what I mean by place design, the geography of design, if you like. Um, and it's, it's very simply a heat map to show valuable properties against uh, less valuable properties. And I think even at the back, you, you should be able to see 
that when where the street fabric kind of falls apart and becomes cul-de-sacs and cut off, and you can see a sort of typical picture there of a bollarded off road and um, inactive frontages, all the bad things about urbanism, you get low value. And where you've got streets uh, with active frontages, mixed use, and that sort of thing, you've got higher value. And um, this is even adjusted for tenure. So this isn't just about, you know, we're spotted council housing versus non-council housing. This is uh, open market, owner-occupied uh, values. So um, that is an attempt to summarise all the work we've done about the value of open space, well-managed open space, the value of design, the value of layout, and so forth. There's no two ways about it. Everything we've looked at, there is significant value difference um, for building uh, pro proper um, places, if you like. And it should be no surprise, because uh, one thing I like about studying residential values is that they capture very, very well all sorts of other value, uh, social value and environmental value as well. And that's simply because people won't pay a lot of money to live somewhere that they don't like, and they will pay more to live somewhere that they think is better. So residential value is a very good way of gauging uh, within uh, limited areas which are the more popular forms. What this chart shows, this we asked people uh, in a, a poll we did, just trying to remember who we did it with now. I think it was Mori or somebody like Ipsos Mori. Um, what was important to them about the home they currently live in? Now, it could be important because it was lacking or important because it was there. But the main point about this is the columns shown in pink are to do with the size of the property, the sort of the basics that we all think. And when, when value is value property, we'll think of driving values, the pounds per square foot is the size of the thing. But actually, the most important things to pe for people think that were neighbourhood, good schools, safety, environment. It's actually where you live, the neighbourhood you live in that matters, not the house. So to be completely hung up about buildings actually makes no sense when you start to think about value and ultimately profit as we are here. Um, the other important thing I think to point out about value in our findings is that the value of placemaking, neighbourhood, sustainable urbanism, complete streets, or whatever you want to call it, um, is a longer-term issue um, than conventional uh, um, development. So this is just the index of UK uh, prices. This shows um, our fore uh, forecast for um, prices in the southeast, and uh, this graph is taken to illustrate to a developer um, how the improvements they make might impact their site value, which is shown in this area here. Now, what you can see, generally speaking, you expect when you start development that there will be a new build premium, a price premium, because it's new uh, and so forth, and, and people will believe in it. But you can see the biggest value uplift is back-end loaded. It's actually, if you've made the place properly, if, if, if the place is successful. It's not going to show up until probably 10 or so years into, into the development. In some large schemes, it will be even longer. So what you're talking about with um, 
good regeneration, good new place creation, um, or whatever, is actually changing the locational value. You know, that thing that estate agents talk about all the time, location, location, location. You're actually changing the nature of it. And that means you get your step changes in value. Uh, you can get them, but they're back-end loaded, and that's a really important consideration. So that's a, a, a very, very quick summary of all the work we've done over the last 20-odd years in the UK. I just want to bring in um, a kind of rationale for urbanism, if you like, that comes from some very recent work we've done in, on tech cities around the world. Um, we joke that our flat white index, which is all about the availability, cost and quality of flat whites around the cities, is actually one of our most telling and most important indices. Um, and, and in some ways it is because it, it kind of exemplifies what a city has to be. Uh, in the digital age. I don't think um, the coffee shop has ever been more important to businesses since the days of Lloyd's of London, you know, or uh, those sort of Georgian coffee shops in the, uh, in the new age of, uh, of commerce and in insurance and broking and so forth. Um, what digital cities are, is about is about how the city has become a commercial entity in and of itself. The city you're in is as important as the company you are, probably more important than the company you are, when you're trying to attract global ta talent. And the digital age is all about uh, attracting the best people. Because if a kid in his bedroom in Korea can you know, make multi-millions out of inventing a, a game involving angry birds, you know, you can you can do digital anywhere. So what it's about is actually making sure that you, that you're in a place that is attracting uh, those cool kids. And what we found was, yes, the big global cities. You've got Singapore, New York, London, uh, Hong Kong, and so forth in the, this list. Yes, they're good at attracting the talent because they're big places that are highly visitable and so forth. But you'll also notice in here some much, much smaller cities which are really punching above their weight in the tech scene. And actually, we think uh, the top tech city is actually Austin in Texas, um, not San Francisco, which comes a, a, a close second. Why is that? It's because of the offer in the city, and it's as much to do with the South by Southwest Festival as it is to do um, with all the things that used to drive the big global cities. So you, know, you no longer have to be near markets. You absolutely have to be uh, the, in the place that attracts the people uh, and the right people. So that's a very much sort of more global rationale for added value. And it also means that I think real estate is facing a real challenge now. And the challenge it faces is the difference between what we've been producing uh, in the late 20th century, which at a global level over history, over time, is a kind of complete aberration, these homogenous, um, uh, low-density, low-intensity sort of places. Uh, and you can see this at work, for example, in California, um, Silicon Valley um, companies are finding it very difficult to keep people in this sort of place, this sort of environment, and losing people to San Francisco they, where they want to be, where uh, all the creatives are, where, uh, where they might bump it in, into some, their next business partner or life partner or whatever uh, in, the, in the street at lunchtime. Um, so 
this box in a park has actually become, this is Box Park in Shoreditch, you know, it's, it's, this is the land of the pop-up shops. This, this is about the life of the street enabling new and different things to happen and providing the flexibility for it to, to all happen in. So um, I think once again, the future's urban and that's, it means we're actually talking about, um, I think for the first time probably in the UK, um, the depreciation of homogenous boxes in, in fields um, and degentrification, which is something that in certain parts of the USA is an accepted phenomenon, that uh, housing estates that start uh, high-end actually over time degentrify. Uh, it's again something we've not really faced in, in this country. Um, and especially in a low interest rate environment, that very uh, depreciation might well loom as the next big challenge for uh, real estate. So our question has stopped being, does good urbanism, good design work? Does it add value? And started to be, why isn't it always done? And actually getting to this question is where it really gets interesting. And hopefully this is where I start addressing uh, what we're all, all here, here for um, in this room. So going back to um, this sort of trio of product, land and money, um, we started to, uh, to actually think about the barriers um, and understanding the barriers to why the sort of thing that people want and it appears they pay more for and that is generally valued socially, economically and environmentally, uh, you know, actually looking at why that doesn't happen. And what we saw that it was that very simply, um, if all you've got is product, in other words, at the extreme, if all you've got is a theoretical architect, you get everything designed but no delivery because you haven't got the land or you haven't got the money. So um, you see that in the self-build sector, you know, by all accounts, there's plenty of people <laughs> wanting uh, to build their own home but just not being able to get hold of plots, for example, or not being able to get money together. Um, if you've just got land and you can't get the other bits together, then you've got uh, moth mothballed sites. And if you've just got money and uh, you haven't got product or, or land, then all you're doing is taking the market and speculating on it. All you can do is kind of flip uh, things that other people have done. In combination, uh, the money and the land, you might get short-term land development, but you won't get an optimal sort of product outcome. If you've got land and product... Um, but you're not paying attention to the money and the management, then you get vanity projects. If you've got product money, and this is probably uh, the most common model, certainly in housing, then you get homogenous housing estates without sort of reference to a long-term land ownership or, or, or land value. What I'm trying to find is what is the space in the middle and what does it take to do? And in order to do this, I'm, I'm going to try and characterise the difference between um, the way things very often are, this is unfortunately pretty much random sort of uh, uh, site uh, in Acton uh, that shows what we mean by contemporary development when we're talking about it. It's blocks in space rather, or blocks in a park. Um, you can see that you know, this quite rich street pattern in the surrounding areas just has a bears no relationship at all to, to this. And uh, what do we mean by a complete streets, as we're calling it now? Well, th this is the enduring uh, uh, nature of, of streets. This is the Via de Mitia in uh, Narbonne in south, uh, southwest France. And I, I, I just love this photo because it shows 
uh, the Roman pavement, the Roman road that centurions or whatever were walking along uh, a couple of thousand years ago is a considerable distance below the current street, but you can see it literally carries on. It's lined with street cafes right now. Um, you can see this in the UK, you know, Watling Street leading up to St Paul's is a, uh, a Roman road. There, there are plenty of examples. Um, and I, what I want to do is just run through some of the different characteristics in the area of product, in the area of land, and in the area of money, which I think are important about these two different approaches and which help us to understand where the profit and where the value might lie and how to capture it in future. So we've got homogenous or zoned versus mixed use. We've got limited tenure versus mixed and flexible tenure. Now... <laughs> This was something that I started, uh, I actually started life at Savills in a mixed-use team back in 1989. And that in itself, just talking about the difference between mixed-use and single-use, created huge issues because of the way we do things. The way the whole model of surveying or appraisal or uh, design or development works made, just makes getting a mixture of uses in one place really tricky. Um, you're talking about purpose-built versus flexible, big box versus fine grain. Um, doesn't really matter. I don't think high-rise high is an issue. Uh, what does matter is how, if you have a tall building, it addresses the street. It's all about the street level. Uh, it doesn't really matter that there's the Empire uh, State Building behind um, uh, the, the, the facade in New York. You can still relate to, to the shops and uh, urbanism at the foot of it. Um, dead frontage versus active, active frontage. Uh, you, you, you get the idea. Um, just the differences in these, um, this, this sort of mixed, flexible, for want of a better word, kind of holistic approach to place creates enormous problems following a, a half a century um, post-war of over well, extreme specialisation within the property industry, within real estate. Uh, situations where planners don't talk to road traffic engineers, who don't talk to housing providers, who don't talk to commercial developers, who don't talk to valuers, who don't talk... You know, it, the, the list goes on. The barriers between all the, those sectors make it particularly difficult, in my view, to just deliver anything like the, this sort of richness and variety and um, multifaceted um, sort of output. We can then also look at um, how that impacts on, on those other two key areas that I identified earlier, land and money. Now, when you talk about um, what does this mean for land, um, this is Bradley Stoke. Uh, from the air. This is uh, a crazy scheme that somebody put forward, I believe, in Bristol, uh, which looks rather fun. It uh, hasn't actually happened. That's a, that's a mock-up. It did happen, did it? Oh, how fantastic. Nobody went very quickly, but it was good fun. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, this was, uh, well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll look for that. So what this is about is the long-term stewardship of place, and that's why I put that photo, photo up there, because you actually need people doing stuff in place, and you need somebody enabling the land, if you like, to work, to work for people. Um, and, and, and that's what that means. The 
the contemporary development would tend to be a situation, it's very rare that you'll actually have a developer stay, stay in place as an owner. Of course, the Grosvenor do it. And, um, it's, it's quite interesting to see the difference between uh, the, the developer, for example, I think of Denver Airport, uh, was an 80-year-old company when they took over Denver Airport. They still had uh, buildings and were landlords and investors and landowners and on sites that they developed 80 years ago, and that's how they they got they got got a lot done in Dem on Denver Airport site very quickly because they were that kind of long term. Uh, they they weren't just going to build it and go away. Um, I did say something ruder there, but I was told to change it. Um, and so this is all about value now, whereas this is much more about revenue over time, or can be, or ha it needs to be in order to happen. Uh, this is about trading, and sort of instant upfront land values. That's more, much more about continuity. You'd expect serial ownership here. The landowner selling to the developer, the developer then selling to owner-occupiers, and the owner-occupier selling to other owner-occupiers over time. Whereas... Um, really good places we find it has often have some kind of ongoing interest. Um, the landed is great landed estates are probably the best examples, but that uh, sometimes charities or local authorities and others, and you look at the experience globally, there's somebody there taking an interest with an interest, um, a, a monetary interest in, in doing the right thing. So this is about plot and this is about whole place. So those are the kind of differences you have to start thinking about with land. And this presents huge, huge challenges when you think how most land is released to market. One of the biggest things at the moment is um, looking at public sector land. We're doing a kind of doomsday book uh, of um, uh, publicly owned real estate in, in London at the moment. And you realise that for a lot of these owners, it's simply not in their interest to release the land because they're obliged to get a capital value up front, sort of maximise the value. That is um, a model that works directly against the complete streets or sustainable urbanism sort of, sort of model. So this, this sort of issue is... is every bit as important as what you physically draw or design or, uh, or build. And then um, there are knock-on effects for the money as well. And the way we're thinking is that the biggest difference, uh, as far as money is concerned, is that this sort of late 20th century model is all about annual return on capital employed. It's very, very difficult to make uh, a value uplift, as I showed you in that graph earlier, 10, 15, 20 years out, work inside of a shareholder model where you have to return a dividend every year. And where um, the complete streets uh, work is in creating long-term income streams and valuing those long-term income streams. Now, and that's where, where you can actually participate in and realise your place premium. And that's where you will get... Um, it's also where you're willing to roll in the development risk into that long-term picture. I don't know if anyone here is from the social housing sector, from a housing association. Um, what... The irony, it seems to me, is that actually potentially housing associations, a lot of housing associations, are superbly well-placed in that sort of money environment. All they have is long-term income streams. Because by and large, and uh, subject to the, to the slight wobble from, from, from uh, the Treasury recently, um, 
you know, they're not going to realise in the main the, the open market vacant possession value of those properties. So the whole value of uh, their real estate is um, the value of the long-term income stream. They're also very, very good at raising capital on the basis of that. They can talk to the bond markets and get extremely favourable rates, which means they can raise a lot of money. And yet, when they come to do development, we see them over and over again hiring people from this model, imposing, arguably unnecessarily, those sort of constraints of annual returns or short-term returns when they could be doing something longer-term and more imaginative. So that's how the whole sort of structure of the real estate industry is impacting on our inability to create good urbanism and just to do what we've always been doing over the last 50 years. There's also, you know, the fact that funding, debt, uh, it tends to be de there tends to be debt funding rather than equity. It tends to be short term and medium, medium term at the most. Uh, you, you'll find some of the best urbanism, Argent's uh, King's Cross would be an obvious example, is being done by commercial property companies who have a medium term funding capability rather than an annual uh, sort of one. Um, it's just plain unfamiliar in the UK. It is um, more uh, a more familiar approach in other countries. Um, but And th there is potential here. As funding, as, as the world is more global, actually, I think um, a lot of this long-term money issue could be um, about getting in more new players, possibly from overseas, uh, where they are used to that longer-term view. Um, and... That makes the money much more about the value of land, the pounds per hectare rather than the pounds per square foot. That's so getting away from that focus on the product, on the architecture, on the building, and towards the whole place um, value. You have to actually put structures in place to enable that. So what we've got there is if we bring together that high-quality, diverse, durable, and flexible urban form um, and combine it with an income-producing asset on the money side, an ongoing land interest, a long-term uh, uh, long land interest, that we're beginning to see and we postulate would actually create the sweet spot that you need to get this sort of thing done. I'm not beginning to claim it's easy. <laughs> I, I hope I've shown you it's so multifaceted, but it means everybody involved in this game actually understanding the nature of it and understanding much more about the land of money than probably we have done in the past. So I'll be very happy to take uh, questions at the end. Thank you very much.